in this show, you'll get to intimately know Ajay Gambier, being the first economist that I've had the privilege to host, publishing a paper along with his cohort on battery storage technologies, innovation, and learning curves. Indeed, over five years ago, they began that research, and it would have been nice had Mr. Musk cited them. He didn't. He offers some insight that some of the other interviewees have not delved into. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Dr. Ajay Gambier, welcome to the show from Grantham Institute for Climate Change. Dr. Gambier is a senior climate change mitigation policy research fellow. A lot to say there. We'll say a bit more about his career momentarily, but um, at the moment, what I'd like to do is just start with Ajay, your undergrad or slightly before what you got into, and then take it into maybe the master's program, and then, then we'll go from there. Sounds good. Thank you, Kyle. So yeah, nice to be here. We're going back a long way now because I did my undergraduate in 1993 to 1996, uh, and that was in chemical engineering. I went to Cambridge University. Uh, I did a master's in engineering straight afterwards, so I stayed at Cambridge for four years. I enjoyed chemical engineering. It had a nice combination of uh, maths, physics, chemistry, all the stuff I liked when I was doing my A-levels at school, which are the uh, qualifications you do when you're 16 to 18. Um, and uh, yeah, I went through my course and then thought, do I want to be a chemical engineer? Had a couple of visits to chemical engineering plants and thought, maybe not, maybe I'd like to use my analytical skills for something else. And then, like most of my cohort, sadly, I ended up becoming a corporate finance analyst in the city for uh, a few months. Uh, it didn't last too long in that job. Yeah. I was there for about a year and then became a consultant in the uh, ICT industry for a few years after that. Always doing things like analysis of businesses and forecasting. I remember back in the late 90s, I was forecasting the demand for third generation mobile. You're now hearing all sorts of stuff about fifth generation. Right. Back then, 3G was the big thing. That then, huh? Yeah, exactly. That was data over cellular, fast download speeds and so on. So I was learning how to build and think about forecast models and learning how to think about the future. Yeah, doing pretty well in that. If I quickly jump in, it's okay. Maybe the money is good, but I'd like to sort of use my brain for something else. And then so now you're in consulting straight after that. Yeah, in ICT industry, which in that time was quite an interesting time because you had the dot com, the big bust. bust. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. In 2000, 2001. Yeah. So I was there during that time. That changed quite a lot of things in terms of the atmosphere and the sort of growth mindset and the excitement in the industry. Definitely took the wind out of its sails for a good few months, maybe even a year or two. But I was doing pretty well in, um, I was focusing mainly on telecoms and 
doing quite well. But then I started to think to myself, is this all I want to do for the remainder of my career? Just focus on one particular market or set of technologies? And the answer was that I didn't really. And at that time, I was becoming increasingly aware of discussions around environmental pollution. So I started looking into that in a bit more detail and started to think, that's interesting and it's a public policy problem and I've never really been interested in or aware of governments and public policy and how governments and regulators and collective action can have a role in solving big public policy problems. So that was the beginning of the end for me in terms of uh, ICT and consulting. Uh, right. Yeah, and then not long after that I resigned from that job and... Um, did a master's in economics, actually in development economics at SOAS, the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in the University of London. Um, oh, that was quite a quite a career change then, huh? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you get if you if you come from an analytical mindset and background, and you start getting interested in public policy problems. Then it doesn't take long before you start thinking about resources and productivity and distribution and allocation of resources and that leads you to economics as a core part of um, public policy issues and I said I was thinking about pollution but I was also then starting to think about all sorts of other issues in the world such as the fact that several years what was it 15 years on from live aid still didn't seem to be any great solution to poverty and hunger and starvation in a lot of sub-Saharan African countries Um, So it just got me more widely thinking about the world's problems, as it were. You know, why are poor countries still poor and not catching up with the rich countries and so on? That was the attraction of development economics. Your program, what was it couched in? Was it sort of a a Hayek? Was it a Friedman? Was it neoliberal or? It was it was kind of anti neoliberal, actually. It was I sort of learned the extent to which the academics teaching me hated the neoliberal economics or at least didn't agree with the neoliberal economics agenda and the Washington consensus and even the post-Washington consensus. I learned the degree to which they found that fairly ineffective in terms of helping countries develop before I really learned about the micro foundations of neoclassical and neoliberal economics. So in a sense, I was doing this master's being told about how, you know, market failure is pervasive and even the neoclassical way of conceptualizing market failure isn't adequate to deal with developing countries' problems. And then on the side, you know, in the evenings, I was kind of reading my microeconomics and macroeconomics 101 to figure out what my teachers were actually talking about. So that was a kind of very accelerated, supercharged education. It was sort of learning at the same time about um, the, the basic foundations of neoclassical economics, whilst then being taught about how those aren't really adequate for the problem at hand. Right. And then completed that master's and straight away you did another master's or no, you took a break again and went back into a different path. That was just one master's I did. That was so I mean I'd already I already had the master's in engineering as a result right. of doing the four year Cambridge. But then I did this other master's in two thousand three to four and that was the development economics one. And after that, I was then interested in working as a government economist. So I applied to the government and it had a scheme for 
called the Economics Fast Stream Scheme, and I applied to that successfully and got allocated to a job in not really what I was particularly wanting to work on. It was in work and pensions. So my first job was as an assistant economist in the Department for Work and Pensions, looking at employment and employment and unemployment statistics and different sorts of employment and unemployment benefits and that kind of thing. Right. And yeah, that was interesting. I mean, it was a good way of applying a lot of aspects of the economics that I'd learned. But then I had an opportunity to go and work in the Prime Minister's strategy unit at the Cabinet Office. And that was at the time that Tony Blair was the the PM in the UK. I thought that sounded pretty exciting. So I went there for about six or seven months and I worked on social care and in particular something called looked after children, which is those children who are brought up, if you like, in care homes or through foster carers. Effectively, their, their upbringing is not directly from their own parents because of, you know, some kind of family separation or trauma. And they had and probably still to this day have much worse outcomes in terms of um, exam results and employment prospects and scrapes with uh, the law, as it were. And so we really wanted to try and get to the bottom of how we could help um, change the paths of, of these children. And we made some headway with that, but I got increasingly cynical, I guess, as I was doing that job and thought, well, we can come up with all sorts of what you might call wonkish policy suggestions, but ultimately you just need a heck of a lot of investment in people who are coming from very disadvantaged backgrounds and who have um, the, the cards stacked against them, as it were. But it was nevertheless a really good education, had a good few trips into 10 Downing Street, you know, the famous road as you go past the security, which all the tourists are looking into. So that was right. that was nice to kind of feel like I was at the center of something. Is it fair to say at that point, you finally thought, okay, so my education brought me to a point where I can have some kind of societal impact and perhaps I can take this a bit further. Yeah, I mean, impact's a good way of thinking about it because, you know, at first, I suppose, if you're lucky enough to go to university and get a job on graduation, certainly from my perspective, a lot of my objectives were around just getting a decent income and getting some stability financially in my life. But then after a while, you start thinking, well, I could be having a direct impact on some of the countries or the world's problems. And that's quite satisfying when you start feeling that the work you're doing, as you said, is having some direct influence. So, so sure. Yeah. So then you started to work within the government and their climate change policy, which I think is really interesting because you're sort of now straddling as a researcher, a little bit of a, a policymaker and a practitioner of sorts. So maybe you can help triangulate those three responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a nice position to be in in academia, having made the jump from policy making to academia, to have an appreciation of how complex it is to formulate policies and the degree to which science-based evidence can and cannot inform policy making. Uh, I'm also lucky enough to have a lot of former colleagues and friends in the government. So it's quite easy for me generally to get the ear of people in the business, energy and industrial strategy department, for example, because they're former colleagues of mine from 10 years or so back and we've kept in fairly constant contact. So that's quite nice. And just briefly, the reason I made the switch from the civil service and policy into academia was because even though I certainly felt like I had influence in the civil service, I also felt as though I had a lot of blind 
blind spots in terms of understanding where the evidence around climate change and mitigation of climate change, or in more layman's terms, the the way we achieve emissions reductions, I felt as though I didn't really understand where a lot of that evidence came from. And yet I was using that evidence in briefings and discussions with ministers and their advisors. So the attraction to go into academia was really to learn more about how the scientific evidence is formulated. And so it's nice to have that combination of having seen some of the inside of the workings of the civil service, but also having seen uh, the inside of academia and been through the process of applying for grants and then setting up research programs and then writing those up and getting them published and then trying to use them to influence policymakers. So that's a kind of nice circular journey, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do want to put a footnote on the emissions reductions and building science-based policies. I do want to come back to that later when we speak about your papers that you've put out recently. And maybe just quickly walk us through, so you transition in academia, and what's that like, building networks with other researchers and working at, now it's a world-renowned climate institute, Grantham, which straddles both LSE and Imperial. What was that like? I mean, looking back, I was very privileged to have the opportunity to work at the Grantham Institute. The Institute at Imperial College and its sister institute at the the LSE, the London School of Economics there, they are world-renowned now and they've built up a really solid reputation for themselves as authoritative places to produce and disseminate evidence on climate change. And I didn't really just walk into the job in 2010 in Imperial, but it definitely helped that hands-on policy-making experience because the Imperial Grantham Institute was certainly looking for people that could do policy relevant research and disseminate it in a way that was influential. So whilst at that time I didn't have a PhD or a traditional academic background, I did have that connection to policy going for me. uh, And so that really, really helped me. And yeah, it's been an interesting journey. It was quite intimidating when I first arrived at Imperial College. I didn't really understand how academia worked. If I'm entirely honest, there's still a lot about academia that I don't understand, even after 10 years. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, I'm suddenly surrounded by world-renowned professors, and I'm working with them on grant proposals or on projects, and that's quite nice. That's a very lucky thing to have, have found myself doing. Difficult as well, because, you know, you have to think hard and up your game and you've got all of these new incentives and challenges in academia that you haven't got in other careers. So definitely a lot to get my head around very, very quickly. And then also did your PhD while at Grantham in Imperial College. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. After I originally went to Imperial College on a three-year contract, and three years seemed like a long time and enough to get into the research, and I didn't really think much beyond that. But after a year or so, I remember speaking to the guy who hired me, and he said, are you enjoying Imperial College? I said, yeah. He said, do you think you might want to become an academic longer term? And I said, yeah, I I do. And he said, well, you probably ought to then think about getting a PhD, because that's going to help your career progression. It's also going to help teach you more formally about research methods and the academic life, as it were. So I then started thinking about that. I joined Imperial in September 2010. It wasn't until November 2012 that I'd actually signed on for a PhD to do that part-time at Imperial. And yeah, I did that. Sometimes it coincided with the work I was doing in the day job, as it were. Other times it was totally separate. So it was a pretty tough 
it was five years part-time I did it in the end. But, you know, looking back on it now, two and a half years later, with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of not having to stay up late in the evenings and night working on it, I think it was a really great thing to do. I'd like to get into some of your research. We can start with the ones that you've had a bigger team on. Nature Science Publications, which are prized in academia because it's some of the highest ranking journals in the world. And then we'll get into some of your more current research that is basically just you, you know, the 2019 paper. Maybe start with the 2016 off-grid solar because I think I see some ties into uh, your development economics ideas in that paper. Yes, some colleagues and I published a paper in 2016, I think it's in the journal Solar Energy Materials and Solar Cells, and that looks at the ability of completely off-grid systems, which are essentially a solar panel and a battery, and perhaps a diesel generator as well, to deliver energy to meet the needs of communities in rural areas who are far away from the electricity grid and don't have a chance to benefit from any of the lighting or fans or mobile phone charging or other services like that. And that's a satisfying piece of work to work on. And it's spawned quite a lot of activity. I've now got a couple of PhD students that are both looking at off-grid solar and storage systems. And it's an important thing because it does marry up climate change and development. And so it's a really core sustainable development issue, whether we can provide low carbon electricity and more broadly energy access to communities otherwise wouldn't have it and if they did have it through extending grids would then lead to quite high levels of carbon dioxide emissions uh, which is in no one's best interest so that was an interesting paper to be involved in and that also gives these uh, sort of developing countries and communities access to a whole bunch of other areas such as education computers and as you worked in previously ICT. So you're in a rural African community that really had none of these things previously. And now if they have computers or they're donated computers, they have access to a whole new world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it mustn't be forgotten. I was in or found myself in some conversation over Twitter this morning about how it's wrongly believed that there's a dichotomy between either climate change or development. And actually, that's a false dichotomy. And it's all about sustainable development. So being able to think about solutions that allow people to get access to laptops or educational facilities or just the lighting that allows them to study later in the evening. That's quite a nice way of combining a couple of public policy problems in terms of economic development and climate change that I've been thinking about over the last 10 to 15 years or so. So now let's transition to the 2017 papers, which are quite highly cited and I think really quite important in terms of how they draw together arguments against renewable energy and climate technologies, innovation trajectories, and how technology changes over time, and that these things need to be considered, which perhaps neoclassical economics doesn't have a solid grasp on, but uh, some innovation-based economics does. You're thinking about the Experience Curves paper on storage, which is one which was led by uh, Oliver Schmidt when he was a PhD student at the Grantham Institute with me over the last few years. And then the second paper you're referring to is that another one which was with Oliver Schmidt on water electrolysis of hydrogen. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So they've been, mm-hmm. they're, yeah, they've been really, really well cited and from that measure anyway, very successful papers. And 
I only take a modicum of credit for those because, uh, you know, Oliver was a tremendous, very exceptional talent that was with us for a few years and worked in an extremely detailed and systematic way on looking at the different cost reduction trajectories of a range of storage technologies. And then he uh, joined a project that I and a colleague of mine, Sheridan Few, had already started, which was to use a technique of expert elicitations, uh, basically asking various experts about their views of how technologies might develop in the future. Um, and Oliver uh, led the expert elicitation on water electrolysis for hydrogen um, production technologies. Um, Sheridan himself led the elicitation on lithium-ion batteries, which is also picking up citations, albeit a bit more steadily than the, the hydrogen water electrolysis paper that, that Oliver led. Um, I think with that one, it was really a case of being in the right place at the right time and the hydrogen economy coming back to the fore in terms of attention um, coming back to hydrogen after a good 10 or 15 years there was lots of talk about how the hydrogen economy would be the way forward to a low carbon future in uh, at the turn of this century really at the beginning of the 21st century but that then that faded away as there was a, quite a lot of funding under Bush, right actually. interesting yeah. yeah i mean i think yeah. a lot of things happened didn't mm -hmm. they you saw the rise of lithium-ion batteries which made electric vehicles a lot more viable in terms of their range and their cost and uh you know that's that in some senses made them overtake the hydrogen fuel cell vehicles as as the preferred or the the more technically viable solution to moving away from petrol and diesel. Uh, and then at the same time, we've seen that it's very difficult to crack this problem of how to decarbonize heat in people's houses and also in industrial manufacturing facilities. And that's brought hydrogen back onto the agenda as well. And so it's those couple of things really that have made the focus on hydrogen grow so much over the last few years. And Oliver's papers really, I think, captured um, and capitalized on this growing interest in batteries um, and their impact on making off-grid systems that we were just talking about, perhaps more economically viable, as well as electric vehicles, more economically viable. Uh, and then the other paper on hydrogen really capitalized on, on the growth in the hydrogen economy. So they've been very far-sighted papers and uh, lucky to have the chance to work with someone um, like Oliver on them. And the paper that he wrote on exper using experience curves, so looking essentially at past cost reduction trends of a range of storage technologies and using those past trends to project possible future costs. Um, that was the first paper that I was lucky enough to publish in one of the nature journals, which, as you said, are deemed to be particularly prestigious. They're, they tend to only publish things which are of wide um, academic interest and which represent a lot of detailed scholarship and state-of-the-art science. So it was nice to have my name on one of those, for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting to point out that you guys were all PhD students at the time. So just to plug the audience quickly, you might be a student and you can still do some great work that is quickly makes an impact. So I think that's important, but also as well that it was in vogue. I mean, the research methodologies were new and novel and important and the technology and the excitement about technology was in vogue. So it's important, I think you just mentioned Twitter, but to keep up to date and 
whatever area you're interested in climate change, it's important to keep up to date with what's out there, what the lay audience is looking into, what technology development companies are interested in in the time. Maybe you could just briefly unpack and explain about the technology. Why was it so vital to sort of tackle this storage issue, this energy yeah, storage Yeah, that's issue? a good question and definitely worth explaining for a few moments. Um, the reason that storage has been such a hot set of technologies for a few years now is because of renewables. And really, we've seen these tremendous cost reductions in renewable electricity generation technologies like solar photovoltaics and onshore and offshore wind turbines. And this is great because it means that we can generate very low carbon basically zero carbon at the point of generation electricity and make a big contribution to tackling climate change because electricity is likely to be a key energy vector in the future and by that I mean that we're increasingly likely to use electricity uh, in our buildings and our homes and our manufacturing facilities and in our cars and so on but of course as as many people will know the problem or one of the limitations with uh, solar and wind technologies is that the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, and how do you therefore match the demand for electricity, which itself is quite fast fluctuating? You know, just think of peak hours and off-peak hours of the day when everyone goes out to work or everyone gets up in the morning or everyone comes back from work. How do you match that fluctuation in demand with the supply when you don't necessarily know or you certainly can't guarantee that the wind's going to be blowing or the sun shining? And one of the big answers to that is electricity storage. And you can store that electricity in batteries for relatively short periods of time, or you can store it in longer term energy carriers like hydrogen by using electricity to generate hydrogen through the electrolysis process. Uh, and then um, you can use that hydrogen either directly through combusting it for heat or in vehicles or some other form. Um, or you can convert the hydrogen back to electricity in fuel cells. So you have these ranges of storage technologies which allow you to balance the supply of electricity with the demand for electricity in a highly renewable energy world, which is something that we may well be transitioning to in the coming decades. And so that's why storage is seen as so key. And battery storage has this second attribute, really, particularly through lithium-ion batteries which is the way in which it has enabled electric vehicles to start to become cost competitive with internal combustion engine uh, vehicles. And that's, as we may well talk about in a few minutes, changing the game in the transport sector. Yeah, I was going to move to your 29 planning the low carbon economy paper, because this thing about the deficits, the model deficits is very interesting to me. So if I may explain... We have some trajectories on the two degrees warming scenarios where the climate will go. And concurrent with that, we have, okay, what sorts of technologies will we need to deploy in order to stay below that warming in terms of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, et cetera. Perhaps you can unpack that paper a little bit because it's, it is quite interesting. I think it's overlooked how these scientists, mostly engineers and economists, as you know, they sort of rubber stamp these models and then they become fact and then they become real policy and their implications on the ground when they might be correct or they might be changing a lot or... Mm -hmm. 
And it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about with other academics these days. And um, I wrote the paper to try and reflect that the models are not crystal balls. They are structured frameworks in which we can put assumptions about how much energy demand might there be in the future, what technologies are there to meet that energy demand, how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases do those technologies emit, and therefore what's the best mix of technologies to meet future energy demand without exceeding the kind of greenhouse gas emissions levels that we um, think would lead to dangerous climate change. And they are often treated as crystal balls or perhaps given a level of authority that they don't deserve. And so that paper was a very short paper in the journal Joule, the Cell Press Journal, which was aimed at saying, look, these models cannot simulate how innovation and invention is actually going to happen in the future. They themselves can't simulate the emergence of social movements like Extinction Rebellion. They themselves rarely have successfully simulated huge technology cost reductions like we've seen in solar photovoltaics or lithium-ion batteries. They can't uh, themselves envisage the emergence of some highly capable, charismatic and well-capitalized inventor like Elon Musk coming along. So we have to take what these models say with a pinch of salt and really just use them as part of a suite of techniques to think about the future. You know, the models didn't tell us that we'd currently be experiencing massive behavioural changes in transport and homeworking as a result of a global pandemic. So and no model really can tell you that. So the best thing we can do is use these models as part of a suite of broader future analysis techniques where we think about in multiple ways, whether it's talking to experts, whether it's talking to the general public um, or novices, whether it's using statistical techniques um, or whether it's just writing science fiction, expanding our imagination in that way. We need to see the models as part of a suite of tools which help us to think about the future and its possibilities. It's very interesting to me from, from a socioeconomic point of view or a political economy point of view, because some of the research I'm working on presently goes back to the IPCC reports, how this modeling was done, and in particular, um, the global warming potential that was developed first in 95 and then 2007, and these kept changing. So then when policies were deployed, they were sort of made for companies to bring down their emissions. And then the IPCC came out with a new report and changed their models. Then the companies say, well, we just did this. We brought it down according to the global warming potential. And now you're saying that we have to do something completely different. So I think you're exactly right as part of a framework. And I think there's also some sort of democratic deficit, so to speak, within these negotiations. You have, I would say, predominantly economists, and you would know better than I, but maybe there's a deficit in sort of political economy or political scientists in writing these reports and bringing some of these future scenarios into a socioeconomic Yeah, context. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, on the issue of global warming potential or GWP, I'm not an expert because I'm not a climate scientist, but my understanding there is that the, the science is still emerging in terms of what the particular warming impact of different greenhouse gases are. And 
the climate is such a complex system that there's still an awful lot of work to be done to understand how emissions translate into um, warming. And so I think that I don't think the advice from the scientific community changed completely. I think that there are always adjustments to advice as um, new information is found. But for a long time now, I'd say over a quarter of a century, there's been a a pretty consistent message, which is that if we don't get on and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, regardless of their precise global warming potential, then we're in trouble. And I don't think that that message from the climate science community has really changed so much. But I think your broader point about perhaps the lack of realism of economic models or the energy system models like the ones I use in uh, socioeconomic and political contexts, that's an important one. And I think it's very, very much easier for engineers to simulate uh, physical systems like the energy system than it is for them to simulate really complex systems like social systems and, you know, the operation of the real world economy in terms of all of the political economy and the relationships between actors and the politics, uh, the messiness of that. So, I'm very, very supportive of approaches to uh, complement and, you know, where necessary, supersede um, the pure physical or engineering based um, energy modelling that we do. And I think that there's a big research agenda there for sure, because, you know, we've known for a long time that we should be imposing carbon prices so that emissions are priced and that the damage from greenhouse gas emissions is recognised in our economic systems. But for various reasons, governments haven't done that. And we know that there are behavioural changes and all sorts of measures like energy efficiency, which are really no regrets measures. They're very low risk and they would be really beneficial to do. But those aren't being done because, you know, maybe neoliberal governments are too scared to go into everyone's house and insulate their house if they're not getting on with it. And so they have to play around with incentives, which may or may not be successful or whatever reason, you know, but we, we know a lot of the solutions, but for those messy political, social reasons, they aren't being implemented in the way that we hope. So there's a lot more to understand about how people and societies behave and react within the political economy that they're, they're existing. That's a great point. And I think this ties back to what we were speaking about earlier on science-based policy. The science-based policy and uncertainty, and here I'm speaking about the uncertainty in the science and the trajectories and how that impacts the way that various actors, whether they be firms or governments or civil society, act and react to such uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh... You know, we definitely want to avoid giving us a false sense of certainty of any of our modelled pathways to a low carbon world because things will change and assumptions made in producing those pathways will change. And there's a real risk that science faces a credibility hit when that kind of thing happens. So we have to communicate uncertainty and unknowns and the fact that we're giving in some cases, best guessed estimates uh, in a much better way than sometimes we've done in the past, because otherwise science will suffer. You know, it's a process of constant discovery and it's a process of not knowing the future, but trying to explore different futures. And ideally, it's a process of trying to decide robust or low regrets actions in the near term, which 
are resilient to a range of future outcomes. So there is a lot of thinking that's being done around that. And I think that something called robust decision making, for example, uh, which is part of a broader way of thinking called decision making under deep uncertainty that's been popularized by people like Rob Lempert at RAND um, in the US. Uh, I think those um, techniques and philosophies are on the rise now and I think that that's entirely correct because we realize increasingly with every day that passes that we need to do something, we need to implement policies but we don't know the future and we definitely know that the future isn't going to look precisely like any of the modeled pathways that were given by um, the scientific community in terms of either energy transitions or in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to try and de devise and deploy policies and strategies that stand the test of time and are good things to do regardless of the, the precise pathway that we find ourselves on. I'd like to move to the, the final paper on direct air capture. And then I think it would be an interesting transition into entrepreneurs and billionaires who have in the last five to 10 years increasingly trying to participate in how to solve these big problems. Max Tavoni, uh, Professor Massimo Tavoni, um, he's at uh, Politecnico di Milano in, in uh, Italy and also part of the Italian CMCC Institute. He uh, was in touch a couple of years ago, probably a little bit longer than that, and he said he had a really great master's student that was looking to do part of her master's in the UK and would I and colleagues at uh, Imperial be interested in co-supervising her? And I jumped at the opportunity and we talked about different things that she wanted to work on. This is uh, Julia Realmonte, the, the lead author of the DAX paper in Nature Communications. And we decided that the thing that was she was most keen to work on was direct air capture, which is a way of potentially removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then sequestering it at high pressure underground. Um, so it's called a negative emissions technology. And so she came along to Imperial and worked alongside me for about four months and uh, designed a way of simulating the take up of direct air capture plants throughout the world over the coming decades, over the course of this century, actually. And then she um, led the writing of this paper on direct air capture, which is the first paper which compares the results in two big energy system models. And that was nice to get that published in Nature Communications, another high impact, high impact journal. And, um, you know, it's gained a lot of interest and it's picking up citations as well, which is good. And uh, impressive feat for her coming in to do a master's and then writing that paper as her first paper and getting it published in such a prestigious publication yeah it's attracted a lot of interest some yeah. criticism because every time you talk about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere there are people that will say well that's pointless and it just it's a distraction from the near-term um, necessity of reducing our emissions it just gives a false sense of perhaps buying time and borrowing from the future and that's fair and i've always said that Technologies like direct air capture, which remove CO2, are uh, insurance against us emitting too much carbon dioxide, but they should never be a justification for us emitting more carbon dioxide than we have to. I think right. that's the right way to think about it. I really don't think we want to find ourselves four or five decades down the line where we've started to do a lot of things to reduce our carbon dioxide, but we're still well over the safe limit. We want to be at a stage 
by mid-century where we actually have the technologies to start scaling up to remove carbon dioxide in order to give us a safe operating space going forward? It's an interesting question, and, and I'll relate it to, to Gates here, because but at the same time, we, we want to develop a few different technologies. I mean, we must develop a few different technologies, but the, it ultimately comes down to how do we take this budget, let's say it is 100 billion right now, maybe if the government's put more, it's 200 billion in a few years. And at some point, decisions must be made. Okay, we're, we're going to put 10% to direct air capture. We're going to put 15% to uh, next generation solar, etc. Um, and why I wanted to talk about Bill Gates, who's recently gotten quite involved in the space, is because there are a few technologies where he's putting all his chips in. So he has quite a bit of money and he's learned and decided that these are the technologies that must be invested in with the amount that he has, which is quite a lot. And that brings up two, I think, interesting points. The first being that perhaps one person, regardless of how smart they may have been in computers, perhaps they shouldn't be responsible for betting such a large amount of money without having some kind of team or democratic climate change team behind them saying, oh, okay, Bill, that's great, but maybe we should put some here and there. I would hope he has some advisors that know this space better than he does. He's obviously a very, very smart guy, but a few of the things he's written as blogs or think pieces on climate change suggest that he uh, hasn't quite got all of the nuances right and that there are dangers in that. I don't honestly know if Gates and other billionaires who are investing heavily in high-tech um, solutions are doing it at, because they're naive or because there's a sort of glamour associated with silver bullet or futuristic technologies um, that just simply isn't there when you think about insulating everyone's home or downsizing or lightweighting vehicles or those more pedestrian forms of emissions reductions. So I think maybe there's an element of that as well. Um, but yeah, I think that it would certainly be advisable if he doesn't have a team of people um, telling him what the right way or what a, what a sensible way, because maybe there can never be a, an incontrovertibly right way of, of um, distributing your chips, as it were, on different technologies. But if, if he doesn't have a team of people uh, advising him on what the, the the useful and least risk and most sensible options are, then that's certainly something that he should get. Because relying on his own very techno technocentric vision is perhaps dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure he does have some sort of team, but it's, I think it just brings up the point of yeah. I mean, I mean there, there's a whole other conversation on how billionaires should donate their money and yeah they're able to do it whatever the way they please but we're talking about something that really does impact everybody so it's that 30 billion dollars or whatever he will commit to it i think it deserves a larger conversation and it also deserves maybe smaller chips put elsewhere which i th i think he is working on that as well at the moment but uh, it brings up the question I think I've seen you've seen in the media recently with, with Bezos, the 10 billion. And then I thought it was interesting and kind of sad that people were attacking him straight away <laughs> before he said where he's going to do with 
with this. Oh, you better not use it here. Or do the, the, the. <laughs> but um, yeah, there, there might be a case for an entire new um, sort of climate think tank around that. What should really rich people be focusing on? And let's have a discussion on this open and transparent with yeah. researchers. With yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's a really that. good point. And it's an under-discussed yeah. point because... The role of philanthropy is potentially very, very important indeed. Uh, one of the groups that has funded me through uh, a few of the studies that I've done over the last years is Climate Works, uh, based out of San Francisco, and they are a philanthropy organizations. So they channel funding from, you know, big U U.S. Um, philanthropy funds, and um, that's got me thinking about the potential role of philanthropy as opposed to the role of businesses directly or the role of governments. And yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, question because, you know, combined people like Gates and Bezos and Zuckerberg and Musk and so forth between them have or have wealth or, or, or economic firepower that is comparable to the hundred billion that you were talking about earlier in terms of those sums um, mentioned in the Paris Agreement. So. Yes, I think it could be extremely influential. And at the moment, right. lots of very rapid decisions could be made, which are perhaps not in society's best interest. So to the extent that we can stimulate a wider conversation around that and have influence on where that money is spent, if indeed we can, then that would be a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, perhaps in a part two, we'll, we'll have to talk about that later. I'd like to really unpack entrepreneurs and innovation a bit more we didn't get to it here but i am cognizant of your time so i just uh, want to get to the last uh, three questions which will get a little bit more personal not that personal um and they are which is quite a common one i think you've heard before so when you were about 18 19 20 years old um did you envision where you'd get to now or the other answer your question is what would you say to yourself as advice as that yeah interesting i mean it's such an interesting question isn't it because it's it's so difficult to understand or uh sympathize with the pressures or the myopia around the future that that your younger self had and at the time, I think when I was going to university, I just wanted to get a job that would give me financial security. You know, I wanted to have um, a, good, a nice place to live and a good social life and just be financially comfortable and free of worries. Uh, and then it was really in my mid to late 20s, I wanted to start having an impact on the world's bigger problems. So would I have told myself back, but would I tell my 18 year old self, you know, don't, don't sort of worry with the financial security thing and focus on the world's big problems, almost like the 80,000 hours um, advice that you should follow your passions. I'm not sure because perhaps I had to go through that journey of um, finding out what it was like to work in finance yeah. or in a particular industry to make me appreciate what I'm doing now more. Um, but it's nevertheless a good, good thing to think about often. Um, so yeah, I think I'd probably say don't worry to my younger self, um, but think about the world's problems and try and uh, work on solutions to them. And that's something that will make you satisfied and happy. Then I think my 18 year old would probably have just told me to get lost. And uh, I think I'd respect him for that. 
as this podcast is directed to a younger audience, if they would like to take a career in this area or if they want to just get involved next to their career um, as practitioners or something else, what would you say to a 20-year-old now that is interested in these things, whether it be the career direction or... Definitely the younger generation will be in some sense is a dominant generation at a time when we hope to have achieved a low carbon or zero carbon future. So I definitely want them to be to make themselves aware of the issues and be inspired by Greta Thunberg and the other people that have unstintingly called for greater action. I want them to try and be um, uh, one step ahead of the game and think about the realism or how realistic it is that they're uh, uh, what they're calling for and what the different pressures and frictions and opportunities in society are. So I think it's in, I'd be I'd wholeheartedly encourage them to get involved, whether through a job or whether through um, a hobby or some kind of complementary activity, the environmental or the sustainable development movement. But definitely do it in a way which is wise and which is intelligent to real world concerns, because I don't think that you're going to necessarily do anyone any favours if you're calling for um, a reduction in carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions in the next few years when that clearly isn't uh, economically or politically or socially possible. So we need to deal with what we've got at the moment and do things in an analytically and scientifically well-grounded way. Thanks so much and hope to see you that soon. That sounds great. Nice talking to you, off. Kyle. Take care. That's it for this episode. Hope you can join us next week. A special shout out to our sponsor. This podcast and all episodes have gotten 100% funding from the Dean's Seed Funding for Strategic Initiatives at UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. It is co-hosted by UCL's Global Governance Institute and UCL's Anthropology Institute. And a very special thanks to our producer, Tavo Carbone, who has also created the music for this and all episodes. If you're interested in hearing more of Tavo Carbone music, you can find him at tavocarbonemusic.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to reach out to me, ask me any questions, please do email me at k.herman.com at ucl.ac.edu.